Well, thank you guys very much for being here. Obviously, we're going through church history, talking about how this actually leads up into where we are today. And we're, we've gone through all this, we're into the modern age now, and we're talking about religion in the world, not just in America, but in the world post-World War I. Everything kind of changed. Everything was up for grabs. Everybody's trying to figure out how does religion still work in a world where such horrible things happened when all the known world... Did you bring enough donuts for everybody? Is that the way that works? Okay. Sarah didn't bring enough, Sarah didn't bring enough donuts for everybody. That's right, man. <laughs> it's worth it. So anyway, it's going to be that kind of a day. Um, so everybody's trying to figure this out. In the midst of this, 1920, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Germanos V, issued an encyclical. What's an encyclical? It's kind of like a bowl, but it's... Something like a special dispensation from the Pope? Um, sort of. No, this little... An encyclical is basically just a letter to be read by a bunch of different people. It's supposed to be going all over the place. Um, so it's a little less umphy than your, the, the bowl or the, or, or the uh, uh, speaking at the cathedral. Germanos was not a particularly popular patriarch, though, because he's a jerk. Nobody liked it. And he was just authoritarian. He was a bully. Um, but also because he did nothing about the Armenian and, and, and Greek uh, genocides. Remember when we talked about Armenia and how the Turks were just running roughshod over Christians throughout Armenia, throughout Greece, slaughtering thousands upon thousands of them? The Patriarch did nothing. He didn't want to upset the Turks. I'm not exactly sure what, what he thought would get worse. I mean, it's like, once thousands upon thousands of your people are being slaughtered for being Christians, what exactly do you think the Turks are planning to do worse than that if you were to stand up against them? But he did nothing about it. Except in 1920, he wrote this encyclical, this letter, to be taken to all churches everywhere, not just, not just Orthodox churches, but all churches, calling upon Christians to give up all their divisions, come together as one united body of Christ. Can we just be one capital C church together? Which is nice, right? Have people tried to say stuff like that before? Yes. So we should say we should use the same liturgical calendar. At which point, all the Catholics went, and we're done. Because that was what was part of the major problem in the first place, right? That was part of the major schism: is the whole when do you do Easter? Really? And that the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church said we cannot agree on this. That was one of the major reasons they split in the first place. So when he said, "Let's all just use the same calendar." The immediate response from Rome is, and whose calendar would that be? So, not necessarily well thought through. And then he said we should allow one another full participation in our rituals. Whether you're a Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist or whatever, everybody should be involved in communion, everybody should be involved. And again, that's when Rome went, and we wash our hands of this. We're not going to let somebody take communion if they're a Baptist. It doesn't work like that. And it's not them being snotty. There's a there's a theology behind it. So you're like, well, there's a reason why we only want Roman Catholics taking Roman Catholic communion. So again, really lost the Catholics at that point. He said we should accept and respect different cultures and the practices of other Christian denominations. Everybody does it differently, and that doesn't mean it's wrong. At which point all the fundamentalists went, and we're done. Because our whole point is that we think everybody's doing it wrong but us. And we need to get back to what we should be doing. Right? And he says, no, so what we should do is... is is place our focus squarely on solving the various social ills in this broken world, at which point all the neo-Orthodox theologians go, and we're done. Because we couldn't care less about that. That's not what this is about. It's about understanding the theology of things, not about figuring out how to work the world. 
So, yeah, he's trying, but in a way that nobody is going to follow, right? Do you see the problem with ecumenicalism? Not that it's a bad concept to try to work together. That's great. But how do you do that? Exactly what do you do to try to help everybody feel like they're working together and pulling in the same direction? Do you say, let's all pull in my direction? What? It's not really ecumenicalism. That's just saying everybody be Greek Orthodox. Is it that you say, let's all just pull and not talk about direction? Well, that's only going to work for a very short time. Do you, do you say, well, let's all just pull in this one particular direction and forget all the other ways that we disagree? Maybe. But then you have to figure out how important is that one direction or how important is all the other things we disagree in. So, it doesn't help that it was written two years after he resigned as patriarch. Um, at, at that point, you're kind of a... <laughs> You're beyond a lame duck. You're kind of a dead duck. You're, you're, not, you're not a duck anymore. You know, he, he left the, the patriarch two years before, so it's this kind of empty gesture, but at least it's this statesman trying to make a point. He actually been forced to resign because there was this move within the Greek Orthodox Church to establish a, a new Hellenic empire where we're going to have all the Greek states and, and, and the eastern part of, or western part of Turkey um, all as one big Greek empire again. Remember the way it used to be back, you know, like 4,000 years ago? Yeah, back in the good old days when I was a kid, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. That's the way it's going to be, man. That's what we want to do. And so they forced him out, and the new acting patriarch, they forced him out because he'd done absolutely nothing about the Turks, right? Right. We want to actually use this as an opportunity for the church to conquer all of this area and call it the new Greek empire. And he's like, I'm not even going to tell them they shouldn't be slaughtering Christians. So they forced him out, and the new acting patriarch supported Greek terrorists, who, you know, essentially like blowing up school buses and stuff in Turkey, and said, okay, the patriarch is now the political sovereign of Greece. Every Greek-speaking person, the patriarch is now in charge of all of that. I don't think that's going to fly. It did, maybe for a minute and a half, until like about 1922 when the Turks were like, okay, you're done, and smacked it all down. But for this brief shining moment, the Greek Orthodox Church said, yeah, we're going to create a Christian Greek empire. Anyway, I at least want to give you credit here to, to Demanos because he tried. He's the first major religious leader, even though he's no longer in office, to actually try to do a genuine, unqualified ecumenicalism, to say, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to follow us. I'm not saying you have to do my thing. I'm being a little ambiguous, because in point of practice, that might be what it would look like. He's like, I'm just saying, can we all just come together? Can we all just get past all those divisions and just be a church together? So, give him credit, we're credit too. Alright, same year, the ecclesia was erected. Anybody familiar with ecclesia, the word ecclesia? It's a temple on a mountain in Oceanside, California, but the name itself comes from the Greek word Ecclesia, or called out ones, those who are called out, which is the most common New Testament term for the church. Right? So if you heard about things being ecclesiological or ecclesiology, that's stuff referring to church setup. How the church setup. What? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes or ecclesiasticus is, uh, are talking about teachers. Who are calling to people who are talking to this group, etc. So, ecclesia, 
called out ones, the special ones. Anyway, it's the center of worship for the esoteric Christian order called the Rosicrucians. Remember these guys? We had fun with these guys before. Who do, what do you remember about the Rosicrucians? Okay, uh, what, do you, what do I mean by esoteric Christianity? Does anybody know? What a learning experience. Okay, these are the guys that create, were created in 1614 by a bunch of Christians who wanted to mix Christianity with Gnosticism, with this hidden knowledge, mystery religion. And a nod to the Jewish Kabbalah. This is a Jewish Kabbalah thingy. What's the Kabbalah? It's, it's Jewish mysticism, the idea that numerology and special words can be incantations to bring about, for lack of a better term, magic in your life and magic in the... In the it's the Kabbalah that tells you how to make a golem, stuff like that. You know, it's Jewish magic. They're like, okay, this whole numerology and colors all mean stuff and world tree, yeah, let's mix all that magic all together to create our own version of Christian mysticism. So it's Gnosticism and the Kabbalah and Christianity and everything all mixed together into something really bizarre. And then we're going to give us a fake history that traces our roots all the way back to the Knights Templar. Because everybody wants to trace their weirdness all the way back to the Knights Templar. If you really want something weird, include the Templars. None of which is true. I mean, the Templars didn't do a tenth of the stuff that people attribute to them. And they had absolutely nothing to do with the Rosicrucians. But the Rosicrucians love it. And they love doing all these weird rituals and stuff that a later esoteric religion group come along at the Masonic Lodge and says, yeah, we're, we're tied to the Rosicrucians and the Knights Templar and, and Solomon. And just go, wait, made in the 18th century in a pub. It's like, no, no, no. We've been around for thousands of years, 18th century, in a British pub. So, they love these guys. Everybody loves these guys. Anyway, the idea of a mystery religion actually caught back on after World War I. Why would that be, do you think? Why would suddenly, because for a while, it was fizzling. Prior to World War I, nobody, nobody was coming to the Masonic Lodge. Nobody was doing much with the Rosicrucians. Nobody was all that interested. Why is it after World War I, people suddenly thought, this is interesting again? Do you think? There you go. That's a that. I'll, I'll just run with that. That's pretty much what it is. It's like, in general, religion is either pointless. I mean, it is obviously didn't stop the war. Worst war that anybody could possibly imagine just happened. And they're like, well, religion didn't have anything to do with it. In fact, the Pope kind of sat out, which he didn't. Pope sat out in World War Two. World War One. He was trying to be neutral and trying to make sure that people didn't kill each other more than they needed to. They're like, nobody did anything to stop it. All the religion in the world didn't stop it. Man is obviously inhumane to man. So I either want to ignore it, I want to drop out and take all these new drugs and drink a lot and write poetry that doesn't rhyme. I want to do something funky. I want to do something totally different than anything that's come before. I just want to ignore all that. Or I just want to escape. Give me weirdness. Um, I want to be drawn to something I don't understand, something bigger than me that doesn't seem like it's immediate and effective. I want something that just feels like a religious drug. Now, I want that ecstatic, pulled out of my body experience. Remember, the Pentecostals are exploding at this point too. This idea of like, can I just step away from reality for a while? Plus, you got all these post-war artists and writers who really like the idea of 
you know, you understand something nobody else understands. You can grasp this at a level nobody else can. You are the intellectuals, the elite. Oh, they love that. There's a reason why this popped up in Oceanside, California. Because in California, all these people going, I want the newest, coolest thing that nobody else has. That's, that's kind of my thing. Like, yeah, they love this. And that it was being presented on a mystical level. It's like, no, no, you're not going to understand this like intellectually. I mean, the more you don't try to think there's just some sort of physical application. This is just you communing with the universe. I love the way one guy, uh, uh, one esotericist says, and uh, this is the look he's going for, the David Blaine look. Goes, <laughs> but he's like, even though revealed and believed, the mystery, with a capital M, the mystery remains nevertheless obscure and veiled in the mortal life. Oh no, you, you believe it, but you'll never understand it. You believe it, but you'll never grasp it. It's just something that you have to hold on to by faith. I don't think God ever says, faith means you're not going to understand any of this ever in any way, shape, or form. Just, you know, roll with it. It's like, <laughs> so I get the idea of saying you'll never understand <laughs> infinity as a finite being. I'm on that. Or that God might say, oh, some things are a mystery. You're never, you may never understand the rationale behind this in, in your life. Yeah, I get that. But the idea of going, Believe just because you feel like believing. That in and of itself is the important thing. Why might that sort of, I don't get it, but I like believing it kind of religion kick in? I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. It doesn't incorporate anything that makes any sense to me, but I like the weirdness. Why would they have embraced that, do you think? It didn't make any sense. Anything you try to do to make sense, clearly no longer than makes sense. If God made sense, then why would he do something that doesn't make sense to me? Therefore, obviously this is all just bigger than I understand, and none of it makes any sense. Just, just go with that. Religion is that thing that doesn't make any sense. That's the only kind of religion I can handle. That's fundamentally changed, right? Now, the, the, reason I, the reason I ask that is not just to be snarky, but nowadays, obviously, there's always going to be people who say, I want, I want to live out my faith with God, I want a relationship, that sort of thing. So an awful lot of people that sit there and either say, religion doesn't make any sense to me, therefore chuck it. Or that say, yeah, well, I don't go to church to make sense. I don't go to church to learn anything. I don't go to church to change. I go to church because I like the way it feels. I like to get churched up. Now, it takes a slightly different take once you get to post-World War II. But that's it's kind of the same feeling you get in the 50s as you do here in the 20s. This idea of, I'm not going to church because it it makes sense, or God is working in me, or I have a relationship, I go to church because the ritual of it, and I don't just mean like high liturgy, the ritual of going to my uh, Pentecostal church, the ritual of going to my Baptist church, that ritual of getting dressed on a Sunday morning, dressed nicely, going to the building, doing that stuff, and then going home, that, that, that stability, that structure of something bigger than me that makes no sense to me, that doesn't actually affect me, except it makes me feel religious, that's a huge draw. That's a huge draw. And you have to understand that in order to understand why you get the, like, the Jesus People movement in the 70s, after the Vietnam War, where you had a number of people going, right, let's get back to that. Just go to church, just be an automaton, do what you're supposed to do, and a number of people going, no, anything but that. You... You want to make sure you shave before you go to church and grow my beard out. You want to have short hair, I want long hair. You want, you want to make sure everything is exactly the way it's always been. I want to make sure nothing is the way it's ever been. I want to get back to that kind of a religion. 
You have to understand all this stuff in, in the church, all this stuff in relationship with God, is going on within a context of what's going on in the rest of the world. For instance, all this paved the way for a later New Age movement. After World War II, after you get this influx of Asian immigrants, all of a sudden people start mixing the parts that they like out of those Asian religions with the parts that they like from esoteric Christianity, with the parts that they like from Christianity, and start coming up with this homegrown kind of weirdness that we tend to summarize by talking about the New Age movement. But all that's coming out of this kind of mentality. Do you understand what it is? No, I don't. That's the most beautiful thing. I just kind of set my mind to the side and I let myself experience the universe. Inherently dangerous. Okay, 1923. The Angelus Temple is built, because apparently there's a lot of that going on in this time period. Constructed specifically as a 5,300-seat evangelistic theater for this woman, arguably the most popular evangelist of her time. Anybody know her, what her name is? No. <laughs> Amy Semple McPherson. Has anybody ever heard that name? If, if so, good. If not, that's bizarre, because she was the most powerful evangelist and most powerful minister for a couple of decades in the United States. And I'm amazed. Everybody can remember Everybody remembers uh, Billy Graham. An amazing number of people even remember Billy Sunday that we talked about. But I am shocked at how many people don't remember Amy Semple McPherson. She's uh, brought up in a Methodist, with a Methodist father and a Salvation Army mother. And she has a little girl that she used to teach sermons to her, her doll collection. But she struggled to see herself as a Christian. She grew up churchified, but not Christian, until she converted to Pentecostalism. She gave her heart to the Lord in a Pentecostal revival, thanks in part to the really cute preacher, Robert Semple. Amazing how often that works. Anyway, whom she married. And so she, I wasn't a preacher when he when married her. So they went off to share the gospel in China, which, remember we talked about last time, is kind of open to Pentecostalism now for the first time. So that's kind of growing. But both of them became ill, and Semple died from uh, malaria and dysentery. So he's out of the picture, and Amy and their baby daughter return home by themselves. She's really young. She's jazzed about being a minister with her husband, but she has no husband. So she marries another husband, Harold McPherson, and has a son, making her Amy Semple McPherson. Anyway, 1915, she's feeling smothered as a housewife. It's like 40, it's 40 years before an amazing number of women felt smothered as a housewife. But she felt smothered as a housewife. So one day she just took the children while her husband was at work, left them a note saying, I'm off to be an evangelist. If you want to come join me, come join me. Which, after a little bit, he did. Until he didn't anymore. 1921, he finally filed for divorce, citing emotional abandonment. Saying, even when I was with her, I wasn't with her. She didn't care about me at all anymore. So, she's off by herself now. Still a very young woman. With her. On the road, being evangelists. That's what God called her to. By 1917, she started her own women's magazine. 1919, her Pentecostal revival in Baltimore gotten hundreds of people following her, but also suddenly reporters are noticing this. You might be cynical. A lot of reporters were cynical at the time. And basically say, this is 
a sensationalistic story about a cute young woman who is doing very um, sensationalistic sorts of services. She would perform dramatic scenes to begin each service with props and costumes and things. This one, every week was a one-woman play kind of thing. Um, she'd wear a weird costume. She, one time she rode in uh, dressed as a, as a motorcycle cop and driving a motorcycle, a, a police motorcycle, and, they had, and she would say, Stop sinning! You know, this simple <laughs> thing. So she, or my favorite, um, she took a stand against a giant cardboard cutout of a gorilla. Uh, there was a whole thing where she's going to stand up for Jesus against the gorilla of sin. So, I mean, every week it was this big sensationalistic production. But McPherson said, no, this is just the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit drawing people in um, and even drawing the, the secular press to do God's work. And hundreds of people and then thousands of people started coming to her services. By 1920, she moved to California. She was failing. Uh, the the 3,500-seat uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic Auditorium, night after night after night. Uh, every night she had a... Hi. Every night she had a, a, a new prayer and healing service. Thousands of people coming. So eventually, in 1923, she formed a new church, and she broke ground on the Angelus Temple, which is kind of a pun. Because the Angelus is the call to is a call to worship in, within Catholicism, and it's in Los Angeles, so the Angelus Temple. It's a fun thing. Anyway, so uh, so this plaque is, is right there. Anyway, within seven years, the temple welcomed over four million visitors and was the largest Christian congregation on the planet. And again, if you haven't heard of any Temple McPherson, I'm really sorry because she had the largest Christian congregation on the planet. Somebody you should actually have heard of. So she started a denomination called the Four Square Gospel, or Full Gospel. Have you ever heard of Four Square Gospel or Full Gospel Churches? That's Amy Semple McPherson. She said the name was in reference to the first chapter of Ezekiel, where the prophet's given a vision of angels, and each of the angels has four faces on it. If you've read Ezekiel, you're familiar with that. Um... The angels each have the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Traditionally, that vision is supposed to have pointed. I mean, again, we don't know. This is what this is what people, theologians over the years, have suggested: is that each of those faces points to a different evangelist, which is a little bit of a stretch. Um, like, well, clearly, clearly, uh, Matthew was the face of the man, and Mark the face of the you know. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what each of those faces necessarily points to. But McPherson said, no, I got a vision. I know exactly what they're pointing to. They're pointing to Christ's various offices of ministry. So, for instance, Christ as a man, that's Christ's role as a savior. Christ as a lion, that's him granting the Holy Spirit, clearly. Yeah, anyway, Christ as an ox, that's our burden bearer. He's, that means he's our healer. And Christ as an eagle, which I probably would have gone for for the Holy Spirit, what with the bird motif. But Christ as an eagle is him coming as the king of kings, which I would have given to the lion. But it wasn't my vision, and I'm not going to critique the vision itself. So that's that's where she's that's where the four square comes from. Um, now what's interesting is even though it was the, the arguably the nation's first mega church, where it was a church designed specifically to be huge, they threw themselves into ministry into the community, which not every mega church necessarily does. They developed commissaries to feed the poor, and for instance, 
when the federal government suspended the free lunch program for public schools, the, her church picked it up. They went, okay, we'll do it. We'll provide a free lunch to all the public schools in, in Los Angeles. Um, they fed at least 1.5 million people during the hardest years of the Depression. This was huge. Um, having said that, they were also shut down a couple of times. Uh, the health department kept shutting them down because they went to health codes and stuff. They didn't, didn't pay attention to any of that. And they were also shut down by the police one time for setting up stills to make their own brandy in the middle of Prohibition. Ain't nobody perfect, but... <laughs> They also set up free clinics, they distributed free clothing, they, uh, they took care of, of, uh, of newborns. And there was a sign in the commentary that read, Everybody and anybody is somebody to Jesus. Which I think is a nice reminder. It's a stop and say, wait, these people matter. Everybody matters to Jesus. In fact, after the 1925 Santa Barbara earthquake, she even, she even went to the local radio station, and while someone was singing, she grabbed the microphone away from the singer, and called for people to bring in food and blankets and clothing to help the, 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 the survivors of the earthquake. Um, because that's Amy Semple McPherson. You know, this is like, nope, this is what we're doing. So by the time the Red Cross finally mobilized to help them, the Angelus Temple had sent in their second team into the area with help. So the, the Red Cross goes to find these stricken people and they find tents, they find people with clothes, they find people with food, because this church actually took this seriously. 1926. McPherson apparently faked her, own, or faked her own kidnapping. We don't know exactly why, and nobody knows exactly what happened. She just disappeared for four weeks and then came back. Um, after everyone thought she drowned, for four weeks the world was mourning the loss of the most important minister in California, the one who was very dramatic and always did these set pieces and things. She's claimed that she had been uh, going for a swim, and then she came out of the water, and she was kidnapped by a couple of Hispanic women who took her down to Mexico and held her for four weeks for ransom before she finally escaped by walking 20 miles to the desert to find help. Um, 30 to 50,000 cheering people came to welcome her when her train got back into Los Angeles. This huge, huge influx of people that dwarfed the group that visited when, when uh, Woodrow Wilson came to town. He got Tiny, tiny little bit of people compared to that. So much more, much more popular Woodrow, but then again, not a big Woodrow Wilson fan, so hey. Then questions started coming up about funkiness with this. They're like, wait a minute, this doesn't quite match up. Um, your co-worker, Kenneth Ormiston, who is rumored by a lot of people to have been her lover, disappeared at the same time and for the same length of time. He even admitted that he had a married lover he just wouldn't tell anybody her name. And ransom notes that were brought in from the kidnappers later had different names for the kidnappers, were the Avengers, were the Revengers, were the this, were the asking for different amounts and stuff. Just, it didn't quite work. Plus, experts were like, wait, you walked 20 miles? You were in chains for four weeks, then walked 20 miles to the desert? You're in pretty good shape for that, uh, actually. Your clothes are in pretty good shape for that. Nothing would indicate that you've been chained up for four weeks and then walked 20 miles through the Mexican desert to find somebody. There's a lot of irregularities with things. Um, was she kidnapped? Maybe. Maybe it's just weird. Was she not kidnapped and she's faking it? Maybe. I'm not sure why. Some people said, oh, well, clearly she's trying to get 
she's trying to drum up business. Clearly, she ran off with her lover and then realized, what am I doing? And came back. But how do I, how do, how do I do that? I mean, I can't run off with my, with my married lover and then come back to ministry. What do I? Oh, I was kidnapped. I don't know. I don't know. But what's interesting is the people who are loudly, the most loudly yelling that she's clearly faking this and she should be prosecuted for it, who do you think those were? Pardon me? Uh, those are two guesses. Their own people, the press. Yep, neither of those. I mean, actually the press were very supportive of her. Well, what? Other church leaders. Other pastors in town said clearly... Clearly, all this success has been because she's a rotten human being. You should shut down her church, and they should all just come back to mind. Like Robert Schuller, one of the other biggest pastors at the, at the time, was just like, clearly she should be prosecuted. Why is this woman still on the streets? So, yeah, it's, it was interesting to see the backlash with this. In the end, the grand jury said, okay, we don't think she was kidnapped. There's not enough evidence to suggest that what happened is what she said happened really doesn't look like that. Having said that, we don't have enough evidence against her for this to go to trial. We can't really indict her because we just don't know. We don't know. So, they decided just to drop it, but her ministry was flagged by scandal and things from then on, until her death in 1944. Having said that, the church continued to thrive. In 1943, Newsweek named her the world's greatest living minister. Again, should know this name, Amy Semple McPherson. Today, the Foursquare Gospel Church has over 9 million members, uh, which is something like 50 times bigger than our church. Which, and our church is, like I think, still, last thing I heard, still the largest growing denomination in the United States, fastest growing denomination in the United States. So, kind of an important big deal for her. 1924, KFUO was founded. And K means what? W means what? Good. So the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, decided to provide inspirational music, record sermons, etc., to people in St. Louis. So they set up a makeshift recording studio in the attic of one of the buildings in Concordia Seminary, started broadcasting in 1924. I bring this up because that means that KFUO was the first religious radio station in the United States. This is the first time anybody used electronic mass media for the church. I don't have much more to say about that, but I think it's worth noting. It's kind of an important deal. Okay. 1924 is also when Olympic sprinter Eric Liddell refused to run. Anybody familiar with this story? Oh, this one you know. Amy said, well, here's No, I don't know that. How do you know this one? Chariots of Fire. This is Chariots of Fire, right. This is more or less the story you get in the 1981 Chariots of Fire. So he was born in China and died in China, which is why, interestingly, there's a lot of people who say, right, making him the first Chinese Olympian. He's the first Chinese Olympian to win a medal. He's born in China, lived in China, died in China. Anyway, seven missionaries serving there with the London Missionary Society. Remember the London Missionary Society? We keep seeing these guys all over the place. He sent back to England for an education when he was a young man. Well, Elton College, uh, colleges in England are kind of like high schools here. So, at high school, showed himself to be <laughs> consummate athlete. He was captain of the college's cricket team, captain of the college's rugby team. He was considered the fastest man in Scotland as a teenager. Once, oh, once he went to the University of Edinburgh, he excelled even more. He, his, he was so good at rugby playing that he became 
uh, part of the Scotland national rugby team. So quickly making a name for himself as Scotland's guy. This is their, he can do everything. Not just fast, but rugby, cricket, everything. This guy is amazing. So famous that he was sent to the, uh, as part of the British Olympic team to the Paris Olympics of 1924. And he's going to run the 100 meter, which was what he was famous for. He'd already set the British, world, uh, the British record for, for running 100. He's going to run the 100. He's going to kick it. But you, you have a face. Donna. No, 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 okay, then. She's, okay. Yeah, we don't do, we don't do Olympic posters quite like this anymore, so. Anyway. Funny thing is, funny thing is, is the qualifying heats for the 100 were to be run on a Sunday. And he said, I consider the Sunday to be the Christian Sabbath, therefore, I can't run on a Sunday. Now, you might sit there and say, I don't see a problem with running on a Sunday. Okay, maybe you don't. But since he thought running is his thing, and since he thought Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, and on the Sabbath you need to refrain from doing what is your thing, you need to stop and let God be in charge that whole day, you can understand hopefully why you're being like, no, I just I can't do that, not on the Sabbath. I can't, I can't work on the Sabbath. Scotland still wanted him on the team, so he trained to run the 200 and 400. Contrary to the way it was in the movie, he knew months in advance that he wasn't going to run the 100. And the movie is like, he gets there and they go, by the way, it's on a Sunday. He's like, no! No, okay. Months before he ever got on the boat, he knew that he was not going to be running the 100. So he knows he's going to run the 200 and the 400, and he'd always been, meh. I mean, I set the school record in the 100 when I, when I ran it in high school. I didn't like running the 400. It's a totally different kind of race. The 400 is evil. 100, awesome. 200, awesome. 400, evil. That's the way that works. His family supported him. Again, unlike the movie. The movie, his sister's like, I don't understand. Yes, no, extremely supportive. His coach supported him. Really solid behind him. Great Britain, not as much. A lot of people in Great Britain really didn't understand. They're like, You're, you would probably win the gold medal in the 100. Why won't you do this? The royal family put pressure on him. We would really like it if you ran the 100 and won. It's like, yes, but I can't. God doesn't want me to run the 100. Pretty sure he does. Why don't you try? Go run the 100. I'm, I'm the king. I'm the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales made a personal appeal. You really should just run the race. Nope. Clearly, you were designed by God to run this race. This is clear what God wants you to do. On the day of the 400, the team masseuse, um, well, technically masseur, uh, slipped him a note written by the rest of the Olympic team. It said, in the old book it says, he that honors me, I will honor, wishing you the, very, the best of success always, quoting from 1 Samuel. So the rest of the British team said, you're honoring God, praise God, that's great. Meant the world to him. Emboldened by that, he went on not only to win the 400, but to set the world record for the 400, which he had never even come close to before. So praise God. Which is more or less where the Chariots of Fire movie ends, because it's really pretty cool. What can you apply from all that in your life? What would you say, looking at some of that? 
you have a conviction God would have you do something, you would act on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even if maybe some people say, well, clearly this is what you should do. It's like, this is this is what makes so much more sense. So you acted on it, too, with the idea in the back of his head that these weren't really going to be the races he was going to go with. Like, even though I'm giving something up, I'm going to make sure I'm still honoring God with this. Exactly. So it's not like, go, because God will clearly make you win that. Not necessarily. He had absolutely no sense that God would have him win those races. He didn't do very well with the 200 at all. So... If he hadn't done well with the 400, would he have done the right thing? Would it have been the right move for the rest of the Olympic team to have given him that note? Even if he hadn't done well. Because he did the right thing for the right reasons. And what's interesting is, Liddell said, yeah, none of that really matters. That was not the big thing in his life. That was, it was cool, and he used that to help him with future ministry. But his big thing was he wanted to go back to China. So the next year he went back to China as a missionary. That's the most important thing that you said. Actually, that's a bit of a misnomer, because he didn't go back to being a missionary. He argued, we're all missionaries. Wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to Christ, or we repel them from Christ. But you're always a missionary. Everybody, always a missionary, all the time. Exactly what are you being a missionary of? He went back, and he rejoined his family, and he was a Sunday school superintendent, and he taught at a local... Anglo-Chinese school for the next 18 years. That, that's where, and he got kids to, to run races, and people would come to church because he was this Olympian, and he's like, yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. He remained an, an athlete for the rest of his life. 1943, he was interned at a Japanese prison camp, along with thousands of other Chinese people and foreign nationals. And so he ministered to the children and the elderly. He taught Bible studies. He encouraged prisoners to stay active. He, everything he did in school, everything he did at church, he just kept doing to a larger audience. He's like, yeah, okay, I'm still going to organize races. I'm still going to organize rugby games. He was a science teacher, so he's like, I'm going to teach science because that's what I do. I teach science and I teach the Bible, and I'm stuck in a prison camp. So I'll teach science and I'll teach the Bible. It's fine. Children lovingly refer to him as Uncle Eric. So instead of just having this one little church, it wasn't tiny, but this one church, he had this rather larger church. just happened to be behind barbed wire. 1945, he died in the camp. Suffering from exhaustion and malnutrition, exacerbating a brain tumor, five months short of the liberation of the camp. According to Chinese officials, he'd been given the opportunity to leave the camp earlier, but had voluntarily given his place to a pregnant woman. Now, there's no official record of that. Some people have disputed that. But what does it say that that's the way China remembers him? Whether it actually happened that way or not, what does it say that just recently, communist China, Specifically said, oh, by the way, this is the kind of guy Eric Liddell was. To the people who actually interacted with him, what would you say Eric Liddell's most important legacy was? He honored God in whatever he did. And that's what makes a difference. There's a lot of people who love the movie Chariots of Fire. Good movie. Very moving. They gave him all sorts of nifty lines that he never actually said, but that demonstrate the heart that he had, like feeling God's pleasure when I run. Yeah, that's really cool. But the vast majority of people who actually knew it, whether or not he won the 400 meter in the Olympics is tiny compared to the ministry that he had. So here's the question. In our lives, we tend to want to look for that big thing that we'll be remembered for. 
not always, but we tend to want to look at, you know, what am I going to be remembered for? What have I accomplished? What thing, what things have I done? We tend to want to go back to maybe thinking more, it's a wonderful life, and saying it's, it's the conglomeration of all the little things that you've done that show your character. All the things that you do behind closed doors, all the things you do at that lunch, all those things that you do at work, all those things that you do on a daily basis that either draw people closer to Christ or repel them from Christ. 1925, Scopes Monkey Trial. But you, you say, I heard it, yeah, you bet, what? Okay, well, let's see. Tell me, if I do, tell me if I do it right then. If it's very covered in school. This is the courtroom battle between Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, right? The most renowned, famous lawyer, and a guy who was a three-time <coughs> presidential candidate and had been the Secretary of State, and also a lawyer. More or less covered by the classic play and movie, Inherit the Wind. Anybody ever see Inherit the Wind? Really? Only a couple. All right. Well, wow. Only a couple of us. We'll, we'll talk later. 1925. Uh, Tennessee Governor Austin P. signed into law something called the Butler Act as part of a series of crucial education reforms in the state. Up until then, Tennessee was known as that backwater state where all they had was like one-room schoolhouses and dirt floors and things. It's like, you know, that's not really a draw to people. Maybe we should improve this. So they put all sorts of money into schools and they... He did a lot of things about new textbooks and stuff, but as part of protecting that, they decided that concerned, because they didn't want to lose religion in the process, and concerned that it was being pushed out, the law explicitly stated that it was unlawful for any teacher at any level of public education in Tennessee to, quote, teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals, unquote. Now, it's interesting phraseology with that law. Does that say you can't teach evolution? Can you teach that man has descended from a lower order of animals and still follow the law? Look at the wording. To teach instead. What if you were to say, yes, God created man through evolution. Does that follow the law or does that break the law? Got to be careful when you write laws because it's always, remember when we talked the other week? You're not protected by law. You're protected by interpretation of law, right? All right. The ACLU immediately jumped up and said, you can't do this. We hate this law. We're going to bring it down. And so they sought out a test case. Remember, we've already seen this idea of test cases when we talked about um, segregation things, where, where various groups say, let's find a test case to break this law, take it to court, so we can get the law declared unconstitutional. Clearly, this undermines separation of church and state. It picks one religion over another. The divine creation is shown in the Bible. Yes, this is clearly, clearly um, inappropriate. Math and science teacher John T. Scopes came forward and said, yeah, I'm willing to testify that I broke it. That's fine. He said, I, I taught evolution while substituting for the regular biology teacher at the public high school. So, yeah, what's interesting is later on, actually, in the middle of the trial, I was actually, actually teaching. I was a sub, so I just said, read the chapter on evolution. 
And so the defense team's like, shut up. <laughs> we want to lose this case. Shut up. But he used the state-mandated textbook, which had a, a chapter on evolution. So the state, you have to use this textbook, and it has a chapter on evolution. So Tennessee engineer and businessman George Rapley, who led the ACLU push against the law, said, wait a minute. So the state of Tennessee forces all biology teachers to break Tennessee law, either by using the textbook, which then breaks the law by teaching evolution, or by not using the textbook, which breaks the law by not using the mandated textbook. So either way, you set it up so they have to break Tennessee law. No, we win. There's no way that they can hold this law if the law itself forces you to break the law. Scopes helped coach his students on their responses so that he would get indicted, so that he would get he would lose the case. Because remember, they're not trying to win the case. They're trying to lose and show that the law is wrong. They want to show that he broke the law and thus show that the law is a bad law. Everybody thinks, oh, he's trying to win. No, he's trying to lose. He's coaching his students to tell them how to make him lose. But they've got to get to the courtroom. The trial itself, though, goes off the rails really pretty quick. Rapelier calls in newspapers and radio reporters. He's like, I want you guys to cover this story, including H.L. Mencken, who is a famous reporter of the day, if not the most famous reporter of the day, most influential guy. He was for the Baltimore Sun, incredibly powerfully important, and an avowed atheist and follower of Nietzsche. And he said, yeah, I am more than happy to rip apart these Christians. And so every single thing he wrote was talking about how idiotic Christianity was, how ridiculous the, the prosecution was, and how awesome everybody in the defense was. Extremely slanted, and he was happy to be slanted. He was very overt about the fact that he was slanted. But Rapelier is like, if we can just get everybody to hear about this, the notoriety itself will help overturn the law. That's what we want. He even contacted H.G. Wells, saying, hey, you're a social theorist, you're an atheist, you want to be on our, on our defense team? H.G. Wells was like, I'm English, I have no legal background, are you nuts? Why would you even ask me this? No, I'm not coming to do this. Go. Pardon me? Yeah. So, trying to win notoriety for the other side, Pastor William Bell Riley, who's the president of the World Christian Fundamentals Association, making him a fundamentalist, brought in fundamentalist lawyer and three-time presidential nominee, William Jennings Bryan arguably the greatest orator of the day. He had this famous cross of gold speech that was considered the greatest speech ever written in English. So it's like, yep, this, this is our guy. You want to bring in H.G. Wells? This is our guy. And they went, we didn't get H.G. Wells. <laughs> so they went, okay, we're going to bring in Clarence Darrow. And this is the, I don't know, the, the, the greatest, we don't have great lawyers anymore. We have lawyers we don't like. Um, you have to go to like uh, Perry Mason on TV or something like that. This is the guy. This is the, the biggest, coolest, everybody respects him lawyer of the day. All of that should really remind you of what? what? Okay. Um, all of this should remind you of, remember that build up to World War One. Well, then we'll do this. 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 You go, doing the exact same thing again. Because we learn from history, right? Not so much. Quickly, this devolved into a battle of personalities between these two guys, who really, really didn't like each other. Which is interesting, because in Inherit the Wind, there are good friends that are forced to do this. Like, no, Darrow hated Brian. 
So it's like, yep, he was, he was happy with this. So instead of defense plan A, the original plan, which was to argue that the Butler Act was unconstitutional because it infringed on academic freedom, it broke down the wall of church and state, you know, that thing. That's the original plan. No, they decided not to do that. Or defense plan B, which defense attorney Dudley Malone said, you know, there's no real conflict between natural science and revealed religion. It could be perfectly biblical and perfectly according to the law to show that God oversaw the process of evolution. Just, you have to have a different interpretation. So, Dudley over here is like, no, no, no. We can, you can say God did it. Darwin, in his second edition of his Origin of Species, said, oh, I think God did this. We can say that, and it doesn't break the law that way. Except Darrow's like, I want to break the law. The whole point is to break the law. If we show that he can do it without breaking the law, they won't overturn the law. You're thinking like a defense attorney, you bonehead. I'm thinking like somebody who's trying to show that the law is unconstitutional. So I, I don't want to get Scopes off. I want to get him convicted and make a big stew about it. So Darrow started saying, you know, fundamentalists are idiots. That's what it is. To believe the Bible is a reliable document, that's idiotic. Do you really want your laws designed by idiots? Is that what you want? To which Dudley's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, oh, this will win, this will win. He even commented one day that Brian was an expert on the Bible. Which he wasn't. He's a fundamentalist, but he's not an expert on the Bible. It would be like saying, you know, Randy, you're an expert on the Bible. And you just went to Bible-ish college and went to Bible stuff. Go to Bible college and get a degree in New Testament. You know, but I read my Bible, I know the Bible. So that the next day, he could put Brian himself on the stand and say, as in the record, we agree, he's a Bible expert. Let's put him on the stand and ask him about this Bible he's an expert on. At which point, Randy goes, I'm not, I, I'm not really an expert. It's in the court record that you said you were. Did you perjure? Well, I didn't say I was. I just didn't say I was. Oh, fine. I'll do it. Brian said, yeah, I'll go on the stand. I'll show him that this, we're not idiots. Using biblical and theological questions devised by Unitarian minister Charles Potter. This is not something where, again, in Inherit the Wind, this is kind of a Clarence Darrow at the top of his head going, okay, I'm going to try to ask some questions. Like, like nope, nope. Spent a couple of days working with Charles Potter, who had already been on record as saying the Bible is an unreliable document, to come up with these questions. Now, I don't want to paint Brian out to be squeaky clean with anything, because Brian was trying to be sensational, too. He was like, he wants us to believe in evolution. He wants us to believe that we're descended from monkeys, and not even American monkeys, and old world monkeys. <laughs> this is what's both of them setting up straw man arguments. So unlike the scene from Inherit the Wind, the cross-examination was really not a victory for atheism. If you've ever seen the movie, it's just like uh, Spencer Tracy comes off as being intense, but on top of things and rationalistic, and, and uh, Frederick March just crumbles. Yeah, it's not even remotely the way they I've read the testimony. It's not even remotely the way that goes. Darrow attempts to badger Brian into agreeing that the universe is only 6,000 years old. And Brian says, uh, I can't say that. It's just one interpretation of scripture. I don't know how old it is. But isn't that what Usher said? Yes. So it's only 6,000 years old. That's what Usher says, not what the Bible says. Maybe it is. I don't know. I wasn't there, so I don't know. I really can't say. 
So then he says, okay, so creation is just a literal 24-hour period, right? This is 24 hours. Which Tony Pine goes, I don't know. That's an interpretation of it. Could be that the days are 24 hours. Could be that there are hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years long. I don't know. Jared's like, yeah, but the Bible says it's 24 hours. No, the Bible says morning and evening, but some of that's even before there were even sun and moon. I, I don't know. Since I wasn't there, I really couldn't say. Really, really, you're trying to put words in my mouth. You're trying to badger me. I can't, I'm not going to do that. There are multiple things like this where Daryl's like, well, surely that's, surely that's. No, that's an interpretation. Judge eventually said, okay, we're done with this. It's not going anywhere. He started off by saying, oh, I don't see where this is going. And the defense said, no, no, we're trying to show the reliability of the document that you're saying you're wanting to build your science textbooks on. The judge went, I'll allow this just because I know this is going to the appeals process. I know that's what you guys are wanting to do. And I want this read into the record, the mentality behind it. Knock yourself out. So Brian said, yeah, I'll do, I'll, I'll do my best to, to speak to all this stuff. Fundamentalists everywhere consider it a victory for Christianity. They heard Brian's response and they said, yes, we come off looking good. We come off looking like the good guys. Daryl keeps asking very jerky questions, and we're answering them beautifully. Right? I mean, Darrow kept, Darrow is now on record calling it a fool religion that anybody with any brain wouldn't follow. So evolutionists, anybody championing evolution must be anti-religion, right? Darrow just proved it. And Brian was extremely classy about the whole thing. He put Darrow down in amusing little ways and made the whole courtroom chuckle, but he wasn't a jerk like Darrow was. We come off smell like a rose. The other side says, oh no, well, I should take, and even Dudley, even Dudley said, as a Christian, I'm offended by the stuff you're saying. That is not the argument we want to say. We want to say that this law is wrong, not that Christianity is wrong. You're stepping on my whole religion. You don't get to do that yet, doofus. When your own defense attorney says, also on the same team, says, please stop that. The other side said, no, this is a victory for our side. Since Darrow showed that Brian couldn't just answer these easy questions. Doesn't the Bible clearly show this? Potter worked really hard to write very easy-sounding, damning questions. Which, by the way, is good debate form. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of debate is you ask things you don't think the other person is really going to evaluate very much. But yeah, the, the evolutionists say, yeah, this is us. We win. Both sides said we won. Especially since... The, the case was then bumped up to the appellate court and kept getting bumped up, kept getting bumped up. Ultimately, the Tennessee Supreme Court declared the Butler Act to be completely constitutional. They said, it's just fine. In the decision, they said, we're not able to see how the prohibition of teaching the theory that man is descended from a lower order of animals gives preference to any religious establishment or mode of worship. So far as we know, there's no religious establishment or organized body that has in its creed or confession of faith any article denying or affirming such a theory. We're not picking sides because... Nobody's made that a part of their articles of faith. So if you're going to actually say the problem is you're giving preferential treatment to a specific religion, well, that's pretty much the wrong legal argument to make, isn't it? Remember before when we talked about you have to pick the right legal argument? It's like, oh, I've got to prove murder. You can't prove murder. You can't prove reckless endangerment. Because you didn't go for that. You went for murder, and you lost. You've got to think this through. 
in the court of public opinion, things began to shift a little bit. Suddenly, suddenly, a lot of new people started thinking of evolutionists as instead of thinking of this weird upstart modernist thing, they start thinking of them as the rationalists, the science teachers. These are the these are the intelligent people and those fundamentalists who are increasingly being seen as reactionary. These are the these are the bad guys. These fundamentalists are these wacky preachers. Within a week after the end of the trial, there's this growing movement of fundamentalism, this growing movement against it. Both sides are growing it. Within a week, Brian suddenly kills over dead. He has a big Sunday meal, goes, takes a nap, never wakes up. Pardon me? I said that as I healed. Oh, okay, let's put that in its context. Not that he died, but if you're going to die, have a nice meal and go to sleep and never wake up. Is that where you're going with that? Okay, good. But, but so this big move, this is their guy. They're putting him as the face of fundamentalism, putting all their eggs in that basket, and then he dies. So fundamentalism takes a huge stutter step. Mencken happily told Darrow, we killed the SOB. And wrote tons of articles about the death of fundamentalism. And why the Scopes trial was such a, a, a wonderful blow for the importance of rationalism. Mencken's not a nice guy. Fundamentalism kind of reached its popular zenith and from this point forward starts to recede. Increasingly people, even within the movement, start saying, you know, you guys kind of do start saying all intellectualism is bad. So fundamentalism is soon going to split between those who continue to call themselves fundamentalists and those that want to get back to the Bible. They want to engage. They want to make sure that everything they're doing is being rock solid. They want to have a relationship with God, but they want to use their minds as well. They want to incorporate higher education learning. Anybody know what that group starts calling themselves? Especially once you get to the post-World War II group. They see themselves as people who are trying to bring the good news, the, the evangelicals. The good news to people. So, so the evangelicals start breaking with the fundamentalists. And so this is where everything starts breaking apart for, for fundamentalism. 1955, in an attempt to use fictionalized history to speak to the McCarthy hearings, because that was the whole point. That, remember the McCarthy hearings where McCarthy was using fear and, and intimidation tactics to try to find communists in the United States? Robert Lee and Jerome Lawrence wrote Inherit the Wind, arguing for this crucial right of intellectual freedom. Please let people think what they think without damning them for it. And they said, oh, here's one thing. We can fictionalize the Scopes Monkey Trial and use that as an example. We can do that. Unfortunately, most Americans' impression of the Scopes Trial is directly or indirectly colored by Inherit the Wind. Whether you have seen the movie or not, if, you, if I were to say, were you aware that Darrow put Brian on the, on the stand and badgered him about biblical things? Maybe you were, maybe more. But if you were, you'd probably go, yeah, Brian didn't do such a great job. The character in the movie didn't do such a great job. But that's the movie, not reality. And that play was never supposed to be accurate. It was never about that trial in the first place. In fact, Lawrence and Lee both went on record afterwards going, I'm almost sorry we did this. We just colored an entire generation's impression of something important. It's not what we meant to do. We were talking about the 50s, not about the 20s. By the way, the Butler Act was repealed in 1967. A teacher was fired for violating the law, and he said, ah, but my dismissal in turn is violating my own freedom of speech. You say I can't say things in, in the classroom as a teacher that I need to be able to say. Therefore, the law itself violated 
my freedom of speech. Therefore, the law is unconstitutional. This is the right argument for. You've got to figure out what's the right way to take down the law. 1926, the Cristero War broke out in Mexico. Anybody familiar with the Cristero War? No, that's what we'll start up next time. But how would you summarize what's going on in history? Any things that you see going on that strike you? show these events, sort of. Chariots of Fire switches some things around so that it's more dramatic, and you go, do you realize there's a more dramatic story going on here that you're not necessarily telling? Because it maybe doesn't, makes for good cinema. The Scopes Monkey Trolley, you go, Inherit the Wind is a good movie. But there's actually stuff going on there that's different from what you just said, and there's more interesting, deeper, richer story going on. There's all these different things where people have dramatized things. What were you going to say? people's internal compass, what they've made their internal compass become, really affects how they relate to outside circumstances that are pressed against them. And we see people building that internal compass on an incorrect vision of who God is, they start searching for something outside of themselves that's another incorrect vision of a new God, whereas we see with Eric Little, who has a correct internal that's a good point. Think about the internal compass. Think about what people are looking for through the ecclesia. Look, look, think about what Amy Semple McPherson was like when she was on, she was on and doing it right, and what she was like when she was off and doing it wrong. Think about what was going on in the Scopes Monkey Trial and how people. Responded. Think about all these different things where people felt so very strongly, or or swayed so very strongly by a movie or by the. It's like, yeah, this is this is the way I feel like. This is what I want it to be like. And the one person, the one person in all this that you can say, not pretty much did the right thing for the right reasons. What's interesting is, most of us remember him specifically because he won the race. And that's the kind of key thing here. I'm not dissing Chariots of Fire. They get to have a movie about that. But the idea of saying he was amazing because the royals were so frustrated with him because he didn't, he wasn't going to win the race that he could have won. But then he went, set the world record, and he won it. Which makes him a hero. Like, no. He said no to his king. I will not break my oath and my relationship to the king of kings. In my mind, that's what makes him a hero. Whether he won the race or not is irrelevant. 
By the way, it does make a good story, though. Let's make a story about how he won the race. That's good, but that is the wrong climactic moment. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for all those who have gone before us. Thank you for all, all those who have kept their moral compass straight. But I also thank you that you give us examples of people who didn't so that we can remind ourselves of maybe how not to do things. Help us, Lord, to remember to, to try to focus on honoring you, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and in what we do and how we interact with those around us. Help us to make sure that this actually changes us on a daily basis. Give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.